Welcome, 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 um, welcome everybody, welcome Christ Church members, viewers online, viewers all over the world. We are back to get understanding with Bishop James tonight. We are so, I'm so excited that now we can come back to Bishop with our intricate questions, deep questions, and he will take his time to answer it all for us. Uh, we we just went to Ghana with our praise and worship. Uh, so those of you in Ghana, I hope you are all here. And uh, those of you around the world, that was from Ghana. I hope you understood most of the tongues which has been spoken. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome. We have here Bishop James Hansen Saki, the presiding bishop of Christ Church International. And he is going to dissect. And actually, I don't know what else he would do, but he will dissect the word for us. Every question we know as he has been doing by the grace of God is going to do that again today. Welcome, Bishop, to get understanding. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Deacon Daniel Jackson. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And uh, thank you to everyone who has um, connected tonight. Uh, we believe that God is here. And there are also the place in scripture where the Bible says we should preach the gospel to every creature. And then there's a place in scripture where the church is taught. And then there's also the place where the Bible says, and many times after Jesus had taught, the people came to him and asked him questions. And then he provided answers. And the scripture says, and he sat down and taught the people. So tonight we sitting down to teach is biblical. Okay, and so you're all welcome, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will help me to bring answers to the many questions that has been on your mind. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful tonight. We ask that your Holy Spirit will inspire us this evening. I pray for everyone who has logged on and who is yet to log on, that you will give them understanding. And I pray that you grant me grace to correctly answer the questions biblically and spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Amen. We have various interesting questions which are already here. Anybody with, um, if you have any questions, you can, you know, join in with our platforms on Christchurch HQ on YouTube and Christchurch International on Facebook, and we will pick your questions up. So we will delve straight into the first question. And Bishop is saying that, is it okay for a Christian to use dating sites to find a partner? <laughs> Blessed are those who are looking for partners. <laughs> for the Lord shall supply their needs according to his riches in glory. Amen. Um, so the question is, is it biblical? Is that the question? Is it biblical for a Christian to use dating sites to um, look for um, a partner that is in this context as Christians, a partner as in the one that you want to marry. Okay, so spouse to be. I don't like using this partner this, that the Western world has tried to put into the world. What kind of partner is that? Um, uh, wife or husband? Even when they are properly married, they still say it's my partner. Partner in what? The Bible calls it husband and wife. So these are the proper biblical descriptions for such individuals. But let's carry on. Um, before I answer the question, I, I believe that um, yes, it's yes and no. Yes or no, depending on the 
the issue. Um, the point is that whoever we will marry um, must be in the world. When I say the world, that means he has been born and is living somewhere on the face of the earth. He must be a human being. And um, if you are a male, you are supposed to be looking for a female. And the female must be expecting a male. Um, because that's a proper way of getting married according to the word of God. It must be between a man and a woman. Um, again, in dating sites are places of meeting. Just like as the world and technology has evolved, um, there is nothing wrong to use dating sites to look for a spouse to be. Um, however, you need to be wise because you will not be able to determine who is on that dating site. And whatever they write up there, which may attract you, uh, may not necessarily be true. That will be subject to serious scrutiny by yourself and further inquiries that you need to make yourself so that you can be making sure that you are really um, not marrying or getting out with a pretender who will do you harm uh, later on. So it is yes and sometimes um, it is carefulness rather than just an absolute no. Um, because of the fact that the world has moved on, there is technological increase and therefore the places where people gather has moved from just physical meetings to online meetings. Just like we are having this service, you are all watching online. You are making contact with me. Um, and so that is the same way that I believe that dating sites were set up. But then there should be proper Christian dating sites and not just any of the ones out there because you must know as a Christian that there are a few things that you need to observe as a believer. That the Bible says you must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What has light got to do with darkness? Uh, there are also people who are hiding behind their screens and they are really not Christians. Some of them may be agents of Satan. Some of them may be wicked and unreasonable people who may just want to kill you for ritual murder, etc. So in, in going on that site, scripture says that we must be wise as serpents. And so you need to be very, very wise uh, in that direction. But as a Christian, I will be wondering, is there no one in church? You know, no one within the circle that you, you, you fellowship within, um, which is much safer because that gives us the room to actually investigate backgrounds um, because it is a proper way of, of, of marrying because you need to be sure who you are getting out with. One or two, it has worked. I know uh, a particular daughter of mine who, who actually got the, the, the husband now from a Christian dating site. Um, she drew my attention when things were becoming some way. And I said, well, <laughs> let the will of the Lord be done. Um, and finally, this, she continued to report to me as to what was going on and who has surfaced. And uh, to scrutinize them, and this person says he goes to a particular church somewhere um, in the Midlands. And uh, I have to follow up to that Midlands and to see the pastor and to be sure that he's a proper human being and that it is correct. And uh, having checked all that, that one worked. So that for me, of the many, that is the only one that has worked. And so I believe that it is a meeting place, but there are a lot of carefulness and security that you need to observe in doing that. That will be my response. I believe that do something hard in church, someone will find you. 
Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, so he's saying that you have to do your due diligence very well. <laughs> we are bringing it here. Uh, so somebody has just, um, because it's related to the first question, I'll, I think I'll jump on to that one. Right. Uh, so the person, before the question, the person is saying he can't have enough of you, so we thank God. You oh. have to tune in a lot more then. Glory, glory, <laughs> glory, you see. Amen. She's dating site, he's dating, <laughs> he's dating site. Oh, glory to Jesus. So he says, uh, what is marriage in the face of God? Mm. Marriage in the face of God or in the sight of God. Um, I believe that um, God determines how we should worship him and not by the standards of the world or by government legislation, etc. It is, it is God who calls the shot on how he should be worshipped. And our primary reference source will still be the Bible, which we believe to be the final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. And the Bible teaches us that for this purpose, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so marriage in the sight of God should be clearly defined as when two individuals with the consent of and he's infinite. So it's difficult to fully comprehend him. But in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, he had to be the father of Adam and also the father of Eve. And so it was the family that came together and put them together. And then he blessed them. So there's also the element of the spiritual blessing of the union. And then it becomes fully fulfilled and established. That foundation is necessary. Uh, when we move on to the law, um, then we will also, the law brings in that added protection. Uh, because you see, there are different laws regarding marriages. Um, especially if we use the African traditional marriage concept. It is marriage all right. The only challenge with that is that much as now it is enshrined in law, it permits the man to marry more than one. You know, it permits the man to marry more than one. That is why after we have done that traditional marriage, which is marriage, which of course we erroneously call it the engagement in, in, in Ghana and in African circles, actually it is the two families coming together, get on to the ordinance, which then, you know, has the legal backing to make sure the man cannot marry more than one. And therefore, if anybody just wants to walk, walk out, really have to go into a court of law for the law to grant a divorce. And then all other things are backed by law to protect both parties anyway. So in the sight of God, there must be the consent of families together, giving their consent for the release of their son and daughter who are coming together and the blessing of God, which of course a servant of God, a representative of God must be present to bless the union. And I believe that when that is contracted based on Christian principles, that becomes marriage in the sight of God. Thank you, Bishop. So marriage is not going to hide somewhere in some exotic island and you know, coming back saying that you're married. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Now the next question is: uh, <laughs> It says, "Do you have to ask for forgiveness if you have wet dreams?" Okay. Since it is marriage and relationship and all other things that can be added onto it, the question is: Must you ask for forgiveness if you have wet dreams? Uh, and so, for let's assume not everybody understands wet dreams. Um, 
that somebody might think that wet dreams is when you dreamt and it has rained on you. <laughs> or that you, you slept and you woke up and accidentally you have actually, you know, weed in the bed. Um, but actually it is having a dream of having engaged in a sexual act. Um, and so when you woke up from such a dream, as a Christian, there's also the tendency where you feel guilty. And, and therefore, that is why I believe this question is coming as to why, whether somebody should say a prayer of forgiveness. The point is that if we sin, we are supposed to ask for forgiveness. If we haven't sinned, then we cannot ask for forgiveness for a sin we have not committed. However, there is also the place where the question is, what led you into that dream? There are others who have not had any thoughts prior and could have such a dream. Um, it has both ways. It can go either way. Either there's nothing at all, and this, this dream just came out of the blue. It could also be that it is some form of spiritual attack um, in which there are certain cases of witchcraft initiations that um, you may see yourself in a dream actually engage in sex with someone and, and that person you don't know, but then it can, it can mean some form of marriage in the spirit or some form of spiritual covenant. And so that's therefore needs prayer. Um, first of all, to pray and ask God, maybe whatever may be the reason why you were seeing yourself in such a dream. And also whoever you have engaged with, whoever they are, you begin to pray that the spirit of God should break such a covenant and anything that actually it meant in the spirit if however you have been lasting after someone and you therefore took it into the dream then that is where you pray for forgiveness because jesus said that if anyone you know jesus took the bar raised the bar higher and he talks about the fact that if you have he said you have heard that it is said you shall not commit adultery then he says that but if you lust after anyone you know you have already committed the sin in your heart so there you pray for forgiveness of sins. That is the context in which you have to pray for forgiveness of sins. But I believe that both ways, the key is waking out of such a dream is to more of pray for the power of God or the anointing of God to break any other covenants that this may mean in the realm of the spirit. And I believe that that is my counsel and my prescription in such matters. Thank you, Bishop. Yes. Uh, so you have to just pray, declare it, whether it is, uh, it is from the evil one or it's just your own personal thing. You have to pray and ask mm -hmm. God to clear that. Um, our next question. Yes, let me even finish it. And then sometimes it is also, it could be an indication of something that is coming. Right. You know, so you also pray to avoid it. You know, to pray that whoever you saw, that thing you just dreamt of should never manifest. And should never happen. And pray to avoid it. Pray a prayer that avoids it completely. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Bishop. Thank yeah. you. Uh, the next question the person is asking, uh, first of all, he wants to know the difference between being spiritual and being religious. And I will add, uh, do we have to have a balance or we should lean towards one or the other? <laughs> this is a very interesting question uh, that will require the precision of a surgeon. <laughs> to really deal with it and and uh, and the skills of a pathologist to actually dissect it 
and uh, find the cause of the issue. But I believe that God um, is, is with us and he will give us the understanding in this question. The difference between being spiritual and religious. Is that the question? Yes, and also whether um, we should have a balance of both. Okay. Um, where do we even start from? Okay. The thing is that all humans are spiritual because they are spirits. You know, we are spirits. So we are spirit beings anyway. Um, what we would define as spirituality is the engagement of our human spirits with a deity or with another spirit being um, outside the human realm. You know, so um, that is spirituality. Uh, spirituality is engagement with a higher spiritual being and, and following that spiritual being's um, directions for engagement. So when we engage God, we are being spiritual. When we walk in line with the word of God, we are being spiritual because we are already spirits. The Bible says that he created us in his image after his likeness. That is exactly how he looks like. And how does he look like? John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit. And they that worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And in that case, if the scripture tells us that God created man in his image after his likeness, then if we understand how God looks like, then we understand who we are. So if that is the case, when we hear image, then of course, object comes to mind. And so when you stand before a mirror, what you see in the mirror is your image. You are the object. So if God was a stone and he created us in his image after his likeness, then we are stones. And so if he is a spirit and he created us after his image and his likeness, then we are spirits. Indeed, Ecclesiastes 12 says that um, then at the point of death shall the dust return to the ground as it was and the spirit will return back to God who gave it. So that concludes the fact that we are spirit beings. Now, having said this, that tells that every human being is already spirit. When you go through spiritual motions uh, to engage a deity, that is a God, then you are being spiritual. Okay. Now, religion is, in the classical definition, it is man's efforts to try to go back to his maker or to relate with his maker. So Adam did a religious act right after falling into sin. You know, before the sin, they were very spiritual and engaging God. God comes into the garden, have fellowship with them, etc. Uh, but the day they fell and sinned, the Bible says when God was coming, they ran away. And in a bid to get it right, because they observed that they were naked, the Bible says that they cut off some bush and tried to cover their nakedness with the leaves thereof. Um, but that was a poor covering because as soon as you cut the leaf from its source, it starts dying, you know. So it was a poor covering of themselves. And that was a man's effort at trying to cover his sin, trying to get it right with God. That is religion. It is man's effort. In the case of Christianity, that is why even though worldly systems and worldly governments have tried to define Christianity and added it as a religion, in actual fact, all religions are man's efforts at getting to God. But in the case of Christianity, it is God who made the effort to come towards man. 
So it was different. All the other religions that have rituals, you know, peoples, you know, follow particular dogma and practice to please God. But in the case of Christianity, it is God, the son, who came dying for us. All other religions, you have to die for the thing. But in the case of God and Christ Jesus, he died for us. So our relationship with him is different when we talk about religion. So being religious actually is actually following something methodically um, to, to please a deity. You know, so that's religious. That's why sometimes we use the same word to say that, you know, follow their medication religiously. You know, so morning, afternoon, evening, that's a regime. You follow it. So some people have to pray three times a day or five times a day. It is part of their religious requirements. They must actually face a particular direction before they can call on their God. These are the rituals, the religion that people follow. Uh, but in terms of spirituality, we are spirits. And every human is already spirit. So any engagement with a deity makes you spiritual in that direction. So we can be spiritual in the positive as in with God through Christ. And people can also be spiritual in the negative as in through satanic agents, idols and gods through Satan. So that, that is the difference um, in, in, in the two. Um, so I believe that we, we just have to be spiritual um, and be regular in our spiritual approach with Christ Jesus. So that will make it a little bit of religious in terms of the procedure. But that is not religion as in religion where all other human efforts is to get back to their maker by sacrifices, by regime, by you know, killing themselves to please that God. This one died for us. All other religious leaders, you have to die for the thing. But in the case of Christianity, God the Son died for humanity. Um, so I believe that sometimes people play with these words, but I believe we should be spiritual in the context of Christ. Thank you. This is a very poignant statement. That means, in actual fact, the summary is that Christianity is not a religion. Yes. Christianity is not a religion. You know, like those of you who say, he said, we are the only, for the sake of a better word, religion where our God came to save us. Yeah. And he is looking, looking to bring us to him. Mm. We are not going to him and asking him to be our God. Mm. So thank you, Bishop. Uh, yeah, this is uh, very, very insightful. Our next question, it says that, uh, <laughs> is it wrong to give because there are promises of rewards, as stated in Malachi of Matthew 3, 8 and 3, 10. So, um, the contest is that, you know, once you are giving because uh, there's a reward, which means you are not giving from your heart. And the mm. Bible says that we should give uh, from our heart. So, that means giving from your heart means you are not expecting a reward. Mm. It's how do we balance these rewards and giving from your heart. Okay. I think that sometimes people, um, you know, try to hide behind certain semantics and play of words and, and to, to actually avoid their responsibility as far as God is concerned. And especially when it comes to giving, when it comes to giving. Um, you see, it, it is not a church or a pastor who is saying that give and then there shall be a reward. It is God actually who, without anybody putting pressure on him, added that aspect to it. So if we take the Malachi account, for instance, the Malachi 3 verses 8 to 12, um, where it says that, you know, will a man rob God? 
Uh, and you say, where, in what ways have we robbed you? And he says, even this whole nation you have robbed me in fights and offerings. Then he says, bring ye all the fights. So the person making the request to bring is still God. Because Malachi says, says the Lord. You know, so it's not says a pastor. Yes, somebody, some pastor may take advantage of that and fleece people or use the wrong approach. But the fundamental question which needs answering is, who said it? Is it God or was it a church? If it is God, then let's follow what he said. He said, bring all the tithes to my storehouse, that there will be meat in my house. Then he says, and I will open the windows of heaven. It didn't say, Malachi said, I will pray for the windows of heaven to be opened. The one who requested us to bring the offerings and the tithes is the same person without any form of coercion said that bring the tithes to my storehouse and I, Jehovah, will open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing. So in this context, we can't argue. And they says, and I'll make you a delightsome land. I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. You know, so the blessings that were added to it was not man who decided to say so. It was God who actually said so. So he added the package to it. Now, whether we choose to give, expecting him to give us the blessing or not, we are required to still obey that instruction because he said it. The, anywhere we have seen, that's just as I was teaching in some weeks ago about you know, the principle of the offering as we trace it from Genesis right through to the New Testament, we could see that actually it is not any of the people involved who requested for anything. But it is God who actually, I mean, from the very first offering that was given in Genesis 4, it was Cain and Abel who brought their offering. It was God who chose to accept Abel's own and blessed him because there have to be a physical manifestation of a blessing. Otherwise, how would Cain have known that his own has not been accepted and his brother's own have been accepted? In the same way, when Noah gave an offering, God actually came in. Noah offered to God willingly it was God who came in to say as a result of this giving which has come up to me as a sweet aroma I am covenanting that I will not destroy the world this way again and as long as I live and as the heavens and the earth remain seed time and harvest will not cease you know summer and cold and and, and winter will not cease heat and cold will not cease so you see that the blessings were coming from God Jesus said give it shall be given back to you. He could have just said give and stop it there. But he is the one who added the thing. So when we give, we give with the understanding of the totality of the request. And we still have an expectation that we will receive something from God because it is not sinful to actually give in expectation of something. See, what we just need to avoid is that our giving must be based on the fact that we worship God with it. It is an act of worship. And that God requires us to do so. And that we are not giving as a form of like a lottery, you know, where I have put in 10. God, you need to multiply this by 50. You know, that kind of mentality. But we must give also with an expectation because the Bible says the expectation of the righteous shall not be cut off. You know, so the biblical principle is that when we give, it shall be given back to us. A good measure pressed down, shaking together and running over, God shall cause men to give to our bosom. 
The first Corinthians account says, when we give, God is able to make all grace abound towards us. It says God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to. So throughout the scriptures, we are told when we give, blessings will come. It will be very wrong, therefore, to say, as for me, I'm giving and I don't expect God to bless me. That's odd. That's when you're trying to become too righteous than God. <laughs> if you don't need it, he will still give because you trigger a covenant principle and it will just be honored, you know. So I believe that, you know, we should give with that mentality and it shouldn't just be that, oh, I'm giving because I don't want to give because, uh, because of the promise, you know. So no, um, yeah. because sometimes it's true. Sometimes people have just said, if you don't give, you won't be blessed. You know, that style also is a bit faulty. You know, when we give, we'll be blessed. But we mustn't make it look like if you don't give, you are cursed. You see, I think that is where sometimes some people stretch it uh, to, to that point. Uh, I've heard a few um, cases where, uh, you know, an elderly woman was refused prayer because she didn't carry an offering. Uh, that, that, that is not Bible. There are a lot of people Jesus ministered to and uh, they didn't have to give anything. Uh, but when we understand the God we serve, we give based on that, and it is entirely not wrong to also give with an expectation from God. Thank you, Bishop. You know, that is why I get understanding. It's an amazing time that we have to all join. So if people are not in now, I think they've missed a lot. Tell them to join quickly now. Right. Um, before we move on, there's another one, but this is plain on semantics. It says that, is it right to say, pay your tithes? And, you know, um, like we all do, collection and um, pay your tithes. You know, the people always say, pay your tithes. Is, is that correct? And, and I think if, uh, maybe I'll stretch it a little bit. Do we have to say donate or give? Because the, you know, there's <laughs> donation and give, you know, all semantics. So uh, if you could kindly um, get into this for us. Okay. Um. All right. I think it's, um, yes, it's a very important question. Um, it may be semantics and sometimes from the biblical perspective, um, we need to look at things from the Bible and do things biblically. Um, throughout the scriptures, we can see that it is more of give, you know, than pay. Uh, personally, I don't like saying pay your tithe. It sounds like some tax that must be paid. Um, but we don't pay an offering to God. We give an offering to God. Scripture says give. You know, when God says bring all your tithes to my storehouse, um, it is more of giving. Um, God told Moses, tell my people to bring me an offering. And so I believe that the scripture says, God loves a cheerful giver and give, it shall be given to us. So I believe that the proper language should be giving. You know, we give rather than um, pay. Uh, because the moment we say pay, it looks like, like tax, you know, but we, we give an offering than pay an offering, you know, because it's a free will, voluntary offering that we offer. You know, you can't, you can't pay an offer. You know, you give an offer. So it should be giving. Um, in the same way, when it came to God, because the offering is a sacrifice, 
that must be offered to God, it cannot be donation. You see, donation is more to charity and uh, maybe people in need. But we don't donate to a deity. We offer sacrifice to a deity. So with God, we give him an offering. You know, so we, we give to God more than we donate and more than we pay. But it is more of giving. So I think the language should be giving. Now, when it came to collection, that word came from the scriptures. You know, 1 Corinthians 16, I think 1 to 2, Paul said that concerning the collections, it says, now concerning the collection of the saints. That is why. So it, whenever you hear some church, it's time for collection. Actually, it may sound weird in your ears, but it is actually Bible. You know, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. It says, now concerning the collection for the believers, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he prospers. So according to your salary, you store something in proportion that there be no collections when I come. So Paul is saying that this time, make sure that you are prepared everything before he comes. You know, and especially in this context, they were supposed to give towards one of the branch churches that was in trouble um, in terms of their need. So he says that, make sure that when I come, I don't need to preach, finish preaching and then say everybody should give. Prepare all of that before I come. So when I come, as soon as I finish, we are not taking any offering. All that you have there, we take it and then I send it to the branch. So that's exactly what is there by his Bible when it says the collection of the saints or the collection for the saints. The same as the offering we do in church every other time we meet to, you know, to, to say thank you to God. The offering we give to God, is that the same as the collection? This, this very context here appears to be a particular fundraising, okay, to support one of the churches, which is the church in Galatia. Because remember, this is in 1 Corinthians 16. So he says that he says it's now concerning the collection for the saints. So this one is not for offering us in worshiping God like we finish service and we are bringing it to the altar for the use of the house of God. This is another form of offering, but this one was not being used within the headquarters. This is going to be used at another branch. And he says it is for the believers of the other side. So I think that there were occasions like that. That is why in Antioch they gathered something and then Paul and the others had to send it to the Jerusalem church. So this time it was a branch church that was supporting headquarters church. In this case, it was a church in Corinth who had taken some offerings, collections, that is what people have given, to be given to some of the needy brethren in the church in Galatia. You know, so he's, he defined that as collections. That is what everybody is giving that must go into a port and sent to, to that place. So that is what actually it is, the collection that was, was done here. It was collected from everybody, you know. So, but then the normal Sunday service that we have or every service that we give an offering, we must always also be prepared with the offering before. It is the principle that Paul is teaching here. But the context of this very scripture is not the daily or weekly ones. This one was for that particular uh, place. That is why it says, when I come, that means that he was not in Corinth. But he's going to come to that branch and he says that I've instructed you earlier that before I come, make sure that you take these monies, put them aside. And when I come, I'm taking them with me to the church in Galatia to go and support the work there.
keep your questions coming. I can see you're all very busy. Um, we have another, we have a question from a viewer mm. now. Mm. It says, um, you know, good evening, Bishop. Does First Peter 3, 3 to 4 mean wearing of earrings and wigs will lead women to hell? I think I can. Let me read First Peter 3. Yes, please. It says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, mm. arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. For let it, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um... This is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied scriptures for a very long time. I do remember when we were growing up as Christians, it was always the argument whether the sisters can actually have, um, you know, makeup on their face, uh, can they wear earrings, and um, those who were doing that were being described as Jezebels, and uh, it is because in Second Kings chapter 9, um, Jezebel was... The Bible says she painted her face. And um, our response has always been, let's look at everything in context. And so Jezebel only didn't paint her face. The Bible says she, she, she wore an apparel. And there were three things that she was described of, of doing. The Bible says she, she wore an apparel and she painted her face. That means she was wearing makeup and she looked through a window. So I said, why do you pick up only the... She's also looking through a window. So looking through a window, does that also make a woman a sinner, you know, and wearing an apparel? Then what? Should we, we should go naked, not look into windows, and then, then you apply the whole thing, you know. So you can't describe a lady who has, you know, applied some makeup as Jezebel. The context of First Peter 3 is that he started off by saying wives should be submissive to their own husbands. And so that even if some husbands who don't obey the word of God, by that submission, they will actually have a change of heart and be won over by the conduct of their wives. And then he says, don't let, therefore, your adornment be merely outward. Because he's already, he's talking about submission and a submissive spirit. Beauty is of the spirit. There is the outward beauty. But what makes someone beautiful is when you have got a beautiful appearance and still your words and your conduct is so beautiful as well. And so he's saying that don't let your beauty or your adornment, what you wear, should not just be what is outside in terms of the hairstyle and the wearing of gold and putting on of fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So the beauty he was talking about is that he said, instead of the, just like what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees when he says that you tithe anise and cumin, however, and you leave the weightier matters, you know, this you ought to do and leave the other not undone, you know, and not leave the other undone. So in the same way, he's teaching here that don't just base your beauty only on outward appearance, but actually develop the inner beauty. And he defined it. He says, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He's not saying that you shouldn't wear that. He's not saying that the women cannot 
where, because it's, there are three things he mentioned there. He says, the arranging of the hair, of the hair, wearing gold, and putting on of fine apparel. So are we saying that if they shouldn't arrange their hair, and they shouldn't wear gold, then they should wear nothing too. Because apparel is clothing. That's what is there. So if you want to strike them, then the women should go naked on the streets. Is that what he's saying? No. He's saying that instead of all this outward nice apparel that we, the ladies wear, he said that's not enough. Add it, balance it with the inner beauty. So when you show the outward beauty of the nice makeup, like some of the ladies here like to do, Kathleen doesn't want me to say what I want to say, but okay. <laughs> Kathleen, I won't say it. Okay, but... You know, when we do all the nice things and the extended eyelashes and the, the wig, God have mercy, I've said it. Okay, the wig and all of those things. He says, balance it. Balance it with a gentle, respectful, quiet spirit in the inside too. Because the real you is a spirit. That's what people will enjoy. You know, not an angry, cantankerous, rebellious, disrespectful lady. You can be beautiful and so rude. Everything that comes from your mouth, we have to put on nose mask. <laughs> because it's so insulting, so attacking. So it says, balance it. So that when you're spiritual and you come to church, your husband, who doesn't believe, will be moved by that gentle and quiet spirit. It doesn't mean quiet as in not talking, but it's talking about that respectful and honoring spirit. So that is a balance here. That is why it says, rather, let it be, you know, so there must be that balance. Um, there have been so many false doctrines flying around, sometimes so stretched that, you know, uh, people will go to hell if they, if they wear um, wigs and, and stuff like that. People... It's not true. Okay, it's not true. Um, you know, there's no, there's nothing in scripture that talks about these things. Sometimes people just stretch these things and make life very difficult for people to even become Christians. You know, because to say that somebody, yes, there are some things you receive and you have to pray over them because you don't know where they came from. That is why the Bible says that everything that we receive, we pray and dedicate it to God and move on. Yeah, we know there are some of them, they are human hair the sisters are wearing others are you know what's that synthetic. some are synthetic yeah see my my champions are here you know they just just love it you know and uh, <laughs> but the, the truth is that um, it doesn't lead you to hell we know what takes us to hell what takes anybody to hell is disbelief in the lord jesus christ the bible says he that receives him will not perish but will have everlasting life Anyone who does not receive him will perish and have everlasting death. That is how somebody goes to hell. Nothing as far as makeup, lipstick, extended eyelashes, wigs, those things don't take anybody to hell. They don't take anybody to hell. Otherwise, there's nothing you will touch on this world. Because the restaurant you are eating in, some of you go to Chinese restaurants and Indian restaurants, you see the Maharaja sitting there and all those things. You still eat, isn't it? Did you go to hell? No. You didn't have any problem with that. You enter the theater, you could see an image. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But you go in there and still enjoy. Some of the things you ate, do you know whether it's a horse? You don't know. But you ate because you prayed over it and you ate it. Let's not allow some people to take us again into bondage. But Christ has liberated us. It doesn't mean we are careless. But to stretch it to say wearing of wigs and things like that makes someone go to hell is totally unbiblical. And those of us that know the word, especially when you're in Christ Church International, study the word. Thoroughly balance it. You and I know I want to go to heaven. And I want to make sure every member of the church, I'm accountable to God one day. And if I believe with all my heart that wearing of wigs would take any of the ladies in church to hell, I'll be the first to stand against it. It's the same thing that goes on with Christmas trees and all of that. Totally unbiblical and unfounded. Okay. The fact that Satan is holding something doesn't mean we can't take it from him. Because where was he before? These things were there before. The days were there before he came. And people dedicated those days to him. So when we come and take it over, it doesn't mean that we are worshipping the devil. So some people just, you know, propound theories and doctrines that really can be supported with scripture holistically. You know, otherwise, what should we wear? You know, what is really definition of what ladies wear and what men wear? You know, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. This is, this is a very insightful, uh, you know, dissertation on, on the... On question mm. uh, yes and it's the same like bishop is saying you know rainbow you know rainbow was created by god it's not our people who have taken over it so exactly <laughs> exactly that's that's what i was saying to somebody i say if you wear wear something why, why do you want to chicken out of rainbow if i get rainbow colors i'll put besides it's also the colors of my my team in ghana accra hearts of oak it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the rainbow we were, we were wearing rainbow jerseys before these people come. They shouldn't come and take over things. We must compete and take it back. It is God's idea. Amen. Amen. I agree with you, Papa. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, thank you for your questions. Now the questions are fast and flowing. So it's, it's, the next question, Papa, is saying, how can one be sure that the spirit behind a pastor or spiritual leader who is laying hands mm. is, tr is true? I mean, uh, you want to find out the spirit behind the pastor or the spiritual leader. So is it true that spirits can be transferred and graces could be stolen or destroyed? Graces can, could be stolen, stolen or, or destroyed. destroyed. I think uh, through the laying of hands, you know, if somebody lays their hand, okay. can they okay. take away your grace or mm. destroy the grace of your life? Okay. Um, there are a few things that, as scripture says, we, we don't fully understand completely but there have been manifestations in that direction um, so let me answer the question from from the way the question was put so that i don't miss anything i think that the first question was whether please help me repeat the question so the question is how can one be no. sure okay yes. the, how can one be sure that the spirit behind a pastor or spiritual leader, or spiritual leader is who lays, hands. who lays hands is the correct one is it from God or the devil? Um, it is possible to know. But you, the one that the hands are being laid on, you need to be very spiritual. What I mean by spiritual is that you need to 
to grow in God. And um, especially the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 is given to everyone to profit with all. The scripture tells us to pray for the gifts. So I would encourage you, first of all, to be praying that the gifts of the Spirit will be manifested in your life as a Christian. Because that is how you'll be able to pick, the, especially the gift of discerning of spirits. is what you'll be able to, the Holy Ghost will use that to detect and help you discern what kind of spirit is behind that man of God or that woman of God or that ministry. Because it is very, very difficult on the face of it to see it. One of the other signs is that by their fruits, you shall know them. The only challenge with that, again, is that it takes time for fruit to come on a tree. You know, so if the person just starts off today, that's why, um, particularly, I'm very, very particular about who I bring into our pulpit. And uh, sometimes there's somebody and everybody who's going after that person, I'm still controlling myself and not being moved by the crowd. And it's because you need to pray thoroughly to be sure who this person is. And because, you know, people can pretend, but especially when it comes to character and fruit of the spirit, at a certain point, you can't continue to fake it. It will come out. By their fruit, you shall know them. So there are certain ministries, there are certain people, you can tell easily that certain behaviors and characters show that there's something wrong. Again, also some of their the doctrines that they will teach and the practices may give a clue as to something is not right here. It doesn't match scripture. It's sounding more of a cult than, than the freedom of the Holy Spirit. You know? So it takes the gift of the Spirit to detect spirits. So with reference to that question, it won't just be a very easy, straightforward thing. It, you have to pick it in the Spirit. Uh, and that is where you need to grow in God to be able to, to have that alignment with the Spirit of God to, to do that. Uh, that is why sometimes they get away with so many things uh, because it takes a while before you can pick them up. And, and that will take a mature person who is very sharp in the Spirit to pick these things up. Um, with reference to the second question, um, yeah, there have been occasions. I mean, I've had um, friends in ministry who have described certain phenomena and i've also observed a few uh, over the years where there may be sometimes later on that you look back and find that mm, what you suspected was correct but um, i've had pastor friends who are senior pastors of churches who have told me uh, or in our conversation to say you realize that brother or that gentleman that pastor yeah i brought him into my pulpit and since then my chest started reducing in number, you know. So I've had pastor friends say that, you know. And later on, when you look back into the life of that particular minister who came into that church and then afterwards saw this, you will see that something blew up somewhere later. He said, ah, we didn't pick it. Maybe it was the fame that made us, you know, blind and brought this person. But since this person came, something is off. You know, there are also certain people you put your head to. And since then, things don't really work again. So it's either really they may not be of God and that they actually may have cast a spell on you. And, and, and for it to have worked means that probably you also let down a guard somewhere. You know, so such things exist. I may not be able to explain all because we can't find a particular scriptural reference to really 
mention that. But there are oppositions in the spirit. Paul said, Satan hindered me time and again. The scripture says in Zechariah that the Satan himself was standing at the right hand side of Joshua the high priest to oppose him. So it is possible that certain places and certain individuals carrying certain spirits with them actually can attack one's ministry and attack one's grace and gift and, and lead you astray. There is also the transference of spirits. And that is why Paul said, lay hands suddenly on no man so that you don't become a partaker of other people's sin. For Paul the apostle to write something like this may be the, the, you know, the closest scripture we can find in that direction because we couldn't say that Timothy was, has left down his guard. But for his spiritual father, Paul, the apostle of God, to tell him that don't just lay hands on anybody because what they are going through might affect you. You know, it says that you are, if you lay hands suddenly on any, you'll be a partaker of their sins. That means that there's a spiritual connection when hands are laid. And that we know that when hands are laid, there is a transference of spirit. There are transference of unctions and anointings. Uh, some call it mantles, but I like to stay away from that because of the way it has been abused in especially occultic churches. Uh, but it is anointings can be transferred that way. Paul said in, in, in Romans 1, or 1 Corinthians 1, that I desire to come to you um, that I might impart unto you some spiritual gift. So you see, it can be imparted. And then also he says that, uh, Timothy, stir up the gift that came upon you when I laid my hands on you. When the body of apostles also laid hands on you, something came to you, stir it up. So once things can go, it means things can also be. And so anybody who may not be sound and proper, and carrying some other spirits to do their ministries and churches, they laying hands on you can impart a particular spirit upon you that will carry on with some of their dubious behaviors. Before you realize you too, you are doing dubious things. You too, you no longer find it wrong to be sleeping with girls or women. Or sometimes you find, you know it's wrong, but something now begins to move you. It didn't, it's, you started well, but now you are ending that way because for some desire for some power, you have allowed somebody to put his hand on you. That is why we have to be very careful who lays hands on us. Um, so yes, there is such a thing. But as I said, the closest we can find is, the, is that scripture um, um, counseling that Paul gave to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy. Wow, thank you. So we need to be very careful and have the spirit in us. He says we should be very spiritual. <laughs> that was one of our questions. Um, the next question, Bishop, the person is saying, it's a very interesting <laughs> question. The person says that you have taught us, Bishop, you have taught us how to love our wives and husbands. But the question is, how do I love my boyfriend and girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> yes. and so what should the relationship look like? Yes. <laughs> uh, the scripture says... <laughs> The scripture says that husbands should love their wives. It didn't say they should love their girlfriends. <laughs> you, are, you are still a boy. Boyfriend, girlfriend. See, the, the marriage, marriage is for men, not boys. And uh, it's for women, not girls. Uh, so, therefore shall a man, shall a man. So, you must be a man. And of course, one can be a man, uh, not necessarily in age, but in terms of maturity. Um, so yes, um, when, when yours have not yet become a marriage, there is, there is a line 
of the loving that you don't cross. Okay, so you, you can't have sex as part of expressing love to your, to your boyfriend or girlfriend. The scripture does not support that. Okay, the scripture does not support that. The, the Bible says in order to, fund, to, commit, uh, to avoid fornication, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have the, their own husband. So it is a premise. That means that if you are not yet a wife and a husband, you can't be having sex and describe that as expressing love. You can show love by buying gifts and uh, smiling to each other. Um, and, and, but you can't go to certain extents, you know, as I was saying at the, at the Proton's Q&A last Sunday, that um, in preparation towards marriage, you have to be very careful uh, that you don't you know, get too much emotionally involved that when ultimately it is not it, your coming out becomes like a prison. And then you end up in a marriage that you actually didn't want, but your hands are tied in. And it will run through the whole relationship. So yes, we're supposed to be nice, etc. But we can't go to the extent of the way husbands are supposed to love their wives and give themselves to them as Christ loved the church and gave himself to the church. So yes, we have boundaries until we cross that line of marriage. Um, so long as it is not marriage, you can't be doing things that married people are supposed to be doing. You know, you can't, you cannot be investing together financially and some of those things. It's, it's wrong. It's a mistake. If it doesn't result in marriage, it has got so many implications and it brings so much wound and pain. So let's, let's be mindful of that much as we are excited and we are in love. The love will be tested, you know, but then we have to know that we've got some limits. The Christmas card is fine. Birthday appreciation all those things, but you know, you, you wait, wait a little bit. You can't buy a car now for for her. Just take take time. Uh, if you want to buy a car, that's that's up to you. But you can't make certain requests after that. <laughs> uh, keep the car money. You can come at a certain time. Uh, but if you are very rich and car is like water for you, praise God. <laughs> I just want to protect you. <laughs> So long as you have not been to the altar, anything can change at the last minute. That is why we counsel this way. Uh, but you, you, can, you can be blessing each other. Nice, Be nice. Show that you can be responsible. But there is a line. There is a line. I believe that's how you can love your fiancés and uh, fiancés. <laughs> yes, I can see people are really happy with their answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Papa. So the next question... <laughs> This one is a very uh, interesting question. It says, what is the main purpose, or I think why, was the, or what is the main purpose Jesus came? So, the Bible says he only came to preach the kingdom of God, and not what we have been told as he came to die on the cross for our sins. It's interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure which one. <laughs> Is that the end of the question? Yes, please. So the person is saying that um, this is a very it's a serious revelation. I'm also <laughs> learning for the first time that Jesus came to preach the kingdom, but he didn't come to die for our sins. Uh, yes, uh, that's what he's been told. That he, you know, Jesus came to 
die on the cross for our sins. But then in the Bible, mm-hmm. he has only seen that Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so the um, question is, what is what, you know, why did Jesus come? I think the, the answer is very straightforward from the angelic visitation of Gabriel to Mary. The manifesto was made clear. Gabriel appeared to Mary and said to her, you are highly favored. And then he says that God has sent me to you, that you're going to be pregnant and you give birth to a son. His name shall be called Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. That is the instruction Gabriel carried from the presence of God from heaven to the earth. Very clear. Now, if he just came to preach the gospel, I wonder this questioner, whether he has really read the whole Bible. Because if you have, the scripture says Jesus went to the cross and died. That is recorded in the Bible. So why did he go to the cross then if he only just came to preach? Peter didn't go to the cross. Paul didn't go to the cross. Bartholomew, all the other preachers didn't go to the cross. Jesus went to the cross. It was very clear. The same angel appeared to Joseph, Matthew chapter 2, and said to him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the pregnancy is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall be the deliverer of the people from their sins. So it's also very clear. Jesus himself also, on a few occasions, said that the Son of Man did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Jesus himself said that I am going to Jerusalem and I will be handed over to the chief priest and I will be crucified and on the third day I will rise again from the dead. And the scripture also is very clear that Jesus died on the cross, that we believing in him, we will be saved. So the reason why Jesus came is to die, to pay the price, the penalty for the offense of sin that was committed by our first parents in Eden, in the book of Genesis chapter 3, by breaking God's law. Sin entered the world. The Bible says in Romans as well, that through one man, sin entered the world. Even so, through one man, Jesus Christ, life comes to us. So, as Adam and Eve sinned, the gene of spiritual death, they died spiritually. And the the understanding here was that when God created us, as I said earlier on in the introduction, uh, when a, a particular question was asked about spirituality, We are spirits who have been placed in this body. So this is just our house. The real person is inside this house. That tells us that when God was addressing humans, and anytime he addresses us, he's actually addressing the real you, not the house. You agree with me that nobody goes to a house to go and shout at the house. He's talking to the person in the house. When you receive letters in the house, it uses the house address, but actually it is not addressed to the house. It's addressing to the one who lives in the house. So when God said, that is how you get to know, the way you are able to know that God actually had been addressing our human spirit was because he said to Adam, 
till this ground, do everything. Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that is in the middle of the garden, the day you eat it, you will surely die. Chapter 3, they, they ate it. They didn't die as we understand death, as in somebody falling down to the ground and not breathing. But it didn't mean God was lying. Because Numbers chapter 23, verse 20 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hebrews says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So God cannot lie. And if God did not lie and they really ate the food, that means they died. And that means they died a spiritual death. They were, their spirits were separated from God. And as a result of that, that death spiritually, that gene was passed on from all generations. That's why Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So as a result of the sin originally committed by Adam and Eve, which passed on to all ages, Jesus came to pay the price, to bridge the gap, so that we can get back to the Father through him. That is why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So the reason why Jesus came is to pay that final ultimate penalty for death. So that we can be redeemed from that original sin that was committed. That was why the whole event itself was played out you know, in a nice way, right there in the garden, God comes in and gives a prophetic word and said, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. When he was talking to the serpent, he was also talking to the devil in the serpent and not the decoy that the devil used. So he wasn't talking to the snake per se, he was talking to the spirit that was in the snake. In the same way, when he was talking to Adam and Eve, he was talking to their real spirit that was inside them. That's how God addresses us. And so right there, when Adam and Eve also decided to cut the leaves and put around them, you see, they took the life of a tree. That means that you can't cover sin until there is death of something, an innocent thing. And so God went further rather that this is a poor covering and he had to kill an animal because the Bible says that he covered them with the skins of animals. You can't have the skins of animals covering some people if that animal was alive. So an innocent animal had to die so that the sins that they have committed, what they wanted to cover up, can be a temporary bandage on it to cover the gangrenous wound until the proper surgery was committed on the cross and was conducted on the cross so that the son of God, who is the seed of the woman, now have to go on the cross and innocently die to shed blood for the forgiveness of sins and return us back to God as the original is. So Jesus truly came to die for our sins. And that is the reason why he came. He didn't only come to preach the gospel. But even if he did, came to, he didn't, he did come to preach the gospel of the kingdom, what is the gospel of the kingdom? 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel of the kingdom. It says that that Christ was crucified. That Christ was buried. That Christ rose again from the dead on the third day. And this is the gospel that was preached to me that I'm also preaching to you. This is the gospel. So if the gospel is that Jesus died and rose again from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, in itself answers your question. Amen. Amen. I think you almost let Bishop preach here. Yes, <laughs> I didn't want to preach, you see. Yes, we thank you, Bishop. We thank you. You've really gone deep right from the beginning again. 
I told you we were going to dissect the word. You know, he has actually done exactly that for all of us. So those of you who are not too sure, all the quotations, he was just quoting them. He's not reading it. So go and also read all of them. All right. So uh, the, another question is saying, as a follow-up to the previous question, mm. it says, when you say, uh, what is thy kingdom come? Mm. When we pray, you know, what, what is that? Thy kingdom come. So we should pray that his kingdom, kingdom come. come yes. Okay, so that came from Luke 11, when Jesus had prayed, and one of his disciples looked at him and said, teach us how to pray, as John also taught his, <clears throat> his disciples. And then he said to them, when you pray, these are the prayer topics you should pray. So these were the model prayer topics. Uh, we know that it has been called the lost prayer, but theologically, and, and technically, it is not the Lord's Prayer. It is the model prayer for us. The Lord's Prayer properly was prayed in John chapter 17. It's a whole chapter. That is when the Lord was doing his own prayer. But this one, he said, when you pray, say the following, that Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is a model. He's teaching us the form by which we approach the Father. Because his disciples saw him pray, and they said, teach us how to pray. So he decided to teach them the technicalities of the prayer that you start your prayer of by worshiping, hallowed be the name of the Lord. Then it says, your kingdom come. Remember that he has taught us that we should seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then these things shall be added to us. So when he says the kingdom come, that, you know, kingdom is, you know, from two words, the domain of a king, you know, domain of king. So where authority and power is exercised by a king, the jurisdiction of a king. And he said, we should pray it down. We should pray that in wherever we are, the kingdom of God should be manifested and expressed in the place. The kingdom of God is the power of God, the presence of God, the will of God, the counsel of God, the presence of God, the glory of God. Everything about the power, the omnipotence, and anything that actually places God first is the kingdom of God. Now, when we pray that because on earth, there is already another kingdom. In Luke chapter 4, during the temptation of Jesus by Satan, the Bible says that Satan took Jesus and said to him, all the kingdoms of this world has been given to me. And for the first time, I believe he didn't lie. It was true. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they handed over the authority that was given to men, they handed it over to him. And did, Jesus didn't tell him he was lying. So he says that anyone who will worship me, I will give this kingdom to them. And Jesus also, after he rose from the dead, he said, the prince of this world, who is Satan, comes and he has nothing in me. So that tells you that there's another kingdom already on the earth, which is not God. That is why he asks us to pray his kingdom come in every Every time we should pray the manifestation of his kingdom in that jurisdiction, in that place. His kingdom come on earth, then he says his will be done. Because the will of a king can be found in his domain. And so that is what it means by thy kingdom come. We should pray that. You know, that's not automatic. It has to be prayed for. Thank you, Papa. Amen. Now, I follow on to the previous 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 question <laughs> so the the we, we are says look for uh, 43 and i'll read the, the okay. scripture it says mm. but he said to them 
I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Mm. Because for this purpose, I have been sent. Mm. So I think the question was premised on this uh, verse. Okay. That is the, uh, maybe it's more clarification to the question. So it's saying, please explain. Okay. All right. Okay. So exactly what I said earlier on. Yes, it says that um, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. The kingdom of God, the domain, the authority of God, the power of God, the presence of God. Now, we can't experience all these things until we have Christ. Because it is, it is the, that means if, if, that, if this is the assignment of Jesus, that he came to preach the kingdom, which fine, it is the kingdom. But what did he preach? See, what he preached was that, believe in me. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is when you come through me that you see the kingdom of God. You know, it's an embodiment of the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? And that is the authority of God. That authority we were originally given from the beginning. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. You see, I use the word domain. Let them have dominion over the whole earth to extend the kingdom of God, the authority of God, the, the, the rulership of God on the earth. This was the original mandate given to man. Now, that mandate has been stolen. It's a stolen mandate. And that stolen mandate came through sin. So Satan has it. And now he exercises his kingdom on the earth. So when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, for him preaching the kingdom, he's preaching about himself. That there is no way to be saved except through him. And that when we believe in him, we begin to exercise that power of the kingdom on earth. We become like embassies of God on the earth. So, and that is why I explained that the 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what the gospel is. So that is why when he says, go into the world and preach this gospel of the kingdom. You know, go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. What is it about? The gospel of the kingdom is that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. If we believe in him, we receive that life that power, that authority, that kingdom. Then Jesus also one day was asked a question. Then he says, some of you think that the kingdom of God comes with an observation, but the kingdom of God is in you. You see, he said the kingdom of God is in you. How? By the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That is the kingdom of God. Then he's also said in one of the scriptures, I think in Luke, he says that if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come into you. Because that is the kingdom of God. That is the power to cast demons out. You see, you're exercising kingdom authority to cast demons out. So when he said this, he didn't mean that he wasn't dying. The, the kingdom can only be realized after he died and rose from the dead. And that is why his first statement after he rose from the dead, Matthew 28 18 to 20, the Bible says, when he rose from the dead, he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now go preach the gospel of the kingdom you know so when he talks about the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom actually he is that agency through which we can see and experience the power and dominion of god on the earth amen i'm sure you're also getting understanding that is why we are all here uh, to, to get understanding. 
in all that I get in. They are getting understanding now. Yes. Um, another question. Now, this, this is like a three-pack, <laughs> three-in-one question. So, mm. I'll take it one by one. It says, is there anything like total forgiveness for mm. any type of sin after regret? <laughs> total forgiveness. Yes. For any type of sin after regret. Okay. After regret. Yes. So. Mm. Okay. Sometimes people can regret, but they have not repented. Yes. Uh, so there's a difference. Mm. So um, repentance, true repentance, is, is not because you have been caught. You know, some people regret because they were caught, but they have not really repented. If they were presented with the same thing, they would do it again. You know, so people say, I regret my actions. But it is because they were caught. Uh, but true repentance is from the heart. It is turning away completely from something. The Bible is true. You see, we as humans, we, we struggle to understand how would God say he has forgiven completely and wiped it off completely. But that's what makes him God. There is such a thing as total and absolute forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is just and faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The mystery of the Godhead in relation to man as far as the forgiveness of our sins was concerned is the mystery of the blood of Jesus that does not cover our sins, but washes it out completely. Now, as humans, that's where we struggle with, because we, when people offend us, we still remember. And uh, sometimes we just won't drop it. And so we think God is like us, but he's not like us. That is the beauty of the gospel. So from the scriptures, there is such a thing as absolute forgiveness of sins. He says, there are sins and iniquities I will no longer remember. The blood does not cover sins. The blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament was covering the sins of the people. That is why every year the high priest must take blood of bulls and goats and go and present it at the altar for the forgiveness that is the covering, atonement of the sins of the people. And then he also does for himself. But Jesus, who was our high priest, on that day when he shouted, Tetelestai, that it is finished. He meant it when it said it is finished. The reason why he said it is finished is that it is finished that the sins of humans can be forgiven, past, present, and future, absolutely. And that is why the scripture tells us that when we sin, we ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, no one can be, seen, can be saved. The Bible says, if the Lord shall count iniquity, then who shall stand? But that's why the mystery of the blood was still left on the earth. To be forgiving sins and covering and cleansing it completely so that it does not exist. When it is covered, sorry I use the word cover. When, when sin is covered, later on you can uncover it. So it's still there. That's what was happening all the way in the Old Testament. But when Jesus took his own blood, and when he shouted, it is finished. The temple and the pathway to the Holy of Holies, where normally the high priest goes to ask for the covering of the sins of the people, 
The veil was torn from top to bottom. That tells you a supernatural hand did it because if it is a human hand, it would have been from bottom to up. And no one would even dare do that because no one should see that holy place and leave. And so Christ actually took his own blood, as the Bible tells us, and went into that place once and for all, pouring out his blood for the total and absolute forgiveness of the sins of the people. So when we sin and we go to God and we repent of our sins, now remember you are not dealing with man. Sometimes we think we are playing, okay, let me just use these words and God will know in your heart. That's where God judges. Have you truly repented? True repentance will receive absolute forgiveness. Partial repentance will not. So your repentance must be genuine and it must be true. And if it happens, I'm telling you, according to the word of God, your sins are forgiven completely and absolutely. That is the good news. Thank you, Papa. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I, I can see we are so engaged, um, but we will take two more questions. Yeah. Um, two more questions in addition to what I'm going to ask. And then we, will, <laughs> we will end here. Yeah, so this one, she's, she's asking, says, um, is it true that an, an angel of God and the devil battle for souls and the winner takes it all? <laughs> Um, <laughs> it is not true. <laughs> the souls of humans is the price of spiritual warfare. Um, when Satan was cast down from heaven, Revelation 12, the Bible says that woe to the inhabitants of the earth. For the devil has come to you in great anger, and he, is, no, he knows that his time is short. And so there is, there is the battle for the souls of humans. Um, but an angel of the devil and an angel of God are not battling for the souls of people. God wants the souls of us to be saved. It is his utmost desire. The Bible says God loved us so much. He commended his love towards us in that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so there, and then the Bible says, what shall he profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So the human soul, God wants us to be saved. In 1 Peter, he says that um, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this is the will of God that everyone should be saved. That means Satan also has a will. He knows he has a short time. He knows the word of God that the only way people can be saved, the human soul can be saved, is when they go through Jesus Christ. So he's working round the clock to keep people in unbelief, to keep people not believing the gospel so that ultimately when that final moment comes, some humans who have not believed, he will take them with him. Because he knows the word of God that cannot be broken. So, and he wants to hurt the heart of God. Because God wants everyone to be saved. But God, much as he sent his son to die for us, gives us a condition by which we can be saved. As I always say, the promises of God always have a premise. And so, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So, Satan works to make sure people don't get born again. Remember that the scripture says in... Um, 
2 Corinthians chapter um, 4, verse 3 to 4, that if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world, small g, O-D, if you read that scripture, is the devil. Remember, he's also called the God of this world. You see, he has his kingdom on, on earth. That's why we must be praying for the kingdom of God all the time. Um, in whom the God of this world had blinded their eyes so that they can see the light of the gospel. So Satan is working hard to blind people from seeing the truth of the gospel and, and therefore prevent them from being saved so that when the right time comes, he knows that God will not bypass his principles. Anyone who is not saved at the time Christ returns would definitely go to the lake of fire. Or at the time they die from this earth, they'll go to the lake of fire. So yes, there is a form of fight or battle over the souls of men, but an angel from the devil and an angel from God are not actually fighting over these things. No. Thank you. Thank you for the explanation. Now, this is, uh, this is a, another very good question. He says, can you explain why is it that Jesus sometimes refused to take glory to himself, redirecting it to his father, and yet sometimes he told people that he was God? <laughs> That's a very good question. The, the, I like the questioner because it means that the person has been reading their Bible. And I like those who have been reading their Bible. It makes my work complete. One of my assignments is to make sure that you are grounded in the word of God. Right. That's a good question because there are, let me answer this question this way. I think when I was teaching on the Trinity, in understanding the Trinity, we said that God exists as one God. Um, he's one God who exists eternally in three persons. They are not separate when I say separate, as in three separate gods. It's, it's a mystery. One day when we get there, we'll get it better. But he exists eternally as um, one God in essence, but three persons in this Godhead. Now, one of the reasons why Jesus does that is that as we study the scriptures, we find out that the relationship between the members of the Godhead is that much as they are equally God, it seems that they have what in theology we call subordination for the purpose of their assignment. So the son subordinates to the father in terms of function, but not in terms of being God. For being God, he's equally God. And that's why on many occasions, depending on the context and who he's talking to, sometimes he says that. Uh, and there are also times you realize that he would have healed somebody and says people should not make, make known to others that he is the Christ. Sometimes he tells the disciples, yes, I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Uh, it is because it's not yet time for him to, be, to die. And so the attack and the speed by which he will be attacked towards you know, being killed, etc. It's not yet time. And he doesn't want to preempt that before the time. That is why sometimes he hides that. But in terms of deferring glory to the Father, depending on the occasion and the time and context, the role of subordination comes in there where he actually defers glory to the Father and then stays as son. And then at a certain time, actually claims equality with God. And then at another time, he does that. That is the role of subordination. So the Holy Spirit is not their younger brother that they like to send about. Remember that, you know, the <laughs> no, but he also plays his role that way. That is their function. Remember that the scripture tells us it was the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. 
So they all have got a function. And the explanation is that they play what we call the role of subordination in terms of particular functions for their role as Godhead. So that is the answer to that very question when people ask, why does it sometimes defer that? And we see that sometimes he claims to be God. answer to why we have what one God but uh, in three persons. <laughs> All right. And then the last one is a very interesting question. I'm sure people are waiting to go and have some. It says it's eating poison. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be last question. And anybody who has more questions, you can keep them coming and next time there's get understanding. Bishop is ever ready to help us understand them. So, Bishop, our last question. Is eating pork a sin? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, I wish somebody who was, I know he likes pork, would have answered this question. But the scripture is what we must go to. And the reason why people have always had this pork question has been because of Mark chapter 5. And the scripture says that, um, I think Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5, the Bible says that Jesus went and crossed over to the other side and met this demonic possessed man um, in Gadara. And, and the Bible says that he asked him, what is your name? And, and the demon that spoke said that my name is Legion, for we are many. And a Legion is between 2,000 to 4,000 a group of 2,000 or 4,000. So when he says legion, that is about 2,000 to 3,000 demons in him. And the Bible says Jesus then cast the demons out. Um, and they pleaded that they shouldn't be sent out, but Jesus still cast them out. And they went into the pigs. The Bible says 2,000 of these pigs ran after the demons possessed them. And they ran into the sea and perished. Now, as a result of this scripture, some people have erroneously taught a doctrine. And of course, indeed, in the Old Testament, as part of the unclean animals that they were not supposed to eat, included pigs. So as a result of that, people have you know, said that, oh, then there was something wrong with them. But bear in mind that these things, these regulations given to them in the Old Testament were regulations in preparation for the final sacrifice. And that is Christ on the cross. Whatever Christ finished on the cross places no limitation on what we can eat and what we cannot eat. However, like I said, these pigs that were filled with the demons, they ran into the sea and they all died in the sea. So those, those pigs died completely. Their descendants are nowhere to be found on the earth. Eating a pig will not open you up for demonic activity. Again, when we're growing up, we see that people say that if you want to be spiritual, don't eat pig. If you eat pig, when people curse you, it will easily land. It's a very nice animal that you can eat to the glory of God. The Bible says that as in the New Testament, the Bible says everything that God has prepared, we should receive with thanksgiving and with gladness. It says only if what you will eat may cause your brother to stumble because he doesn't have spiritual maturity and understanding, then you don't do it publicly for that person to be offended. But biblically, it is not wrong to eat pork. It is not wrong to eat pork. Um, otherwise, there are other things in the Old Testament like crustaceans and some, you know, other shellfishes that um, they were all told 
It was the Jews that were told not to eat. But I said to you, most of the laws and regulations in the Old Testament were actually symbolic of the reality to come. The ultimate sacrifice has been paid on the cross, and that is through Jesus Christ. That is why after the death of Jesus Christ, we don't need all those ablutions and all those cleansings. We have been cleansed by the blood. We have been washed by the water of the word. We are saved through Jesus Christ. And so you can really eat pork, and you will not go to hell. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you. Whoever asked the question, I'm sure you have a bowl ready for some barbecue, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> we thank God for such a stupendous time uh, of going through all these questions, a lot of questions. And we thank all of you for, you know, having a very interactive session with us, uh, asking, letting Bishop go through all these questions. I'm sure there are even more to come. I know it's as we do it, it will come around and the next time with mm. a few more. Uh, thank you. Let's all say God bless you, Bishop. Amen. Amen. I receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Um, I believe that you, you've all been blessed. And um, I think such sessions are very good. And I think we need to do it very often as well it brings understanding to everyone and i believe that it enlightens us uh, we could do much within this period uh, as compared to when i'm standing and preaching just on one topic uh, but then it's good to have the diversity or the variety of of the teaching of the word and i believe that it helps us to grow in our knowledge of god and i pray that whatever you have learned tonight you'll be able to go back to the scriptures check them as they did in the church in berea so that you'll be able to teach others also to the glory of God. Amen.